It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being DC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get rid Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. Listen, let me tell you, I, I, let me tell you, I, I know we're still in it. I just stopped counting at around five or six uh, and not because I was frustrated because Jay, I got to tell you, I have been, I've been really in a good mood. Uh, I've good. gotten a lot of calls, you know, from individuals that have been frustrated, disappointed, uh, people not necessarily sure how to make their next move, uh, tension, anxiety, you know, and, and I'm not in any way, uh, you know, frowning on those in- individuals, but I have been really in a good space. However, I stopped counting after like week five or six. So we, we have a new saying in our house and it's every day is today. Yep. Every day. And is. so we're just, every day is today. We're, we're dealing with today and not worrying about tomorrow and tomorrow will be today. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, uh, speaking of every day is today, uh, you know, certainly there are some different sentiment uh, as we move around the country. And last week, uh, Mr. Powell, uh, pushed for robust policy action. He is the Fed chairman, uh, and he said that economic devastation was, quote, hard to capture in words. You know, that's Jerome Powell, uh, the Fed chairman, while down the conference table, you know, just kind of virtually slide down the conference table, Mr. Mnuchin called for a rapid reopening. Uh, quote, his feeling is there is the risk of permanent damage if states delay the Treasury, Secretary said. So you have competing arguments. And today is, what's the saying? What's the saying today? What's the saying? Every day is today. Yeah, every day every is today. Day. So we, we have competing arguments. Every day is today. And and so I don't know where you are in the state. I think all 48 uh, out of 50, or that didn't even make sense. Yeah. I think 48 <laughs> out of 50, all 48. I think 48 out of 50 have reopened. Uh, and so what we just encourage each and every person to do is, you know, not to think necessarily about the economy. We've all taken a hit. Don't think about the economy. Try your best to to keep your mental, um, you know, emotion in check. Think primarily about your health and the safety of yourself and the people that you love and tertiary, the people that you don't know. It's the people that you don't know that this can be catastrophic for or because of. And so I just want people to be healthy and safe. You know, that that just got me thinking, Torn. I think it would be good for us to have a conversation or just have a show on uh, UBI, so universal basic income. I think that it we actually saw in Spain um, this week that they think the UBI they've put in place for the pandemic will become a part of their economic strategy as a country. And we're just seeing this conversation pop up all over the place. And when you think about, like, I don't know about you because I don't know your history, but I've been poor, like really, really, really poor. And it's hard to think about anything else when you don't have, you know, kind of those next couple of dollars even in the bank and and how much stress and anxiety that could take away from from your everyday change and these economic ups and downs because you would have that basic income. We won't get into that now, but I think that would be an interesting conversation with you and I. Yeah. And if we had that conversation, maybe I'll describe to you the poor that Torrin has been. 
Can yeah, we have a, like a pour off? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> hey, you know what? That could be fun. A pour off, uh, a play on words, pour yes. off, like literally, because it might make some people want to sip when we tell these stories. Yes. Uh, and so I absolutely appreciate that. So listen, I love the thought. We can do it. We can talk about UBI, Spain. I did some uh, work or research on, uh, I believe it was it was Finland a couple of years ago, uh, talked about the, the research that they did. So I think I enjoy doing a segment about uh, UBI. Let's put that on our calendar. Okay, deal, deal, deal. All right, so you ready to talk about TikTok then? Let's make it happen. (laughs) All right, so a few months ago, we had a just little segment on TikTok and their censorship of LGBTQ um, accounts. And they have popped back up into the news um, in the last couple of weeks with a story from The Guardian about how they are now censoring accounts, this time to, air quote, protect those who might be bullied due to physical or mental conditions. You know what, Julie? I'm uh, I'm I'm hopping real quick. I, first of all, I love the work the Guardian does, uh, and yes. so I am actually going to go to their website when we uh, uh, complete this recording. Um, I'm going to find that story, uh, and I'm going to make a donation. I, I believe that they have the donation option on every single story. Uh, it's been a while since I've been to their site, but I'm going to go and make a five or $10 donation because I do believe that they do some great work and hopefully I can associate it with this particular story just to kind of let them know that we appreciate this type of content. Continue. Yeah, no, great idea. Uh, so really what we're talking about and are people with disabilities, um, people who are overweight, LGBTQ people, and also apparently some black creators on TikTok who, if if someone commented and used the N-word mm. um, on one of their posts, then they would take the creator's post down, not the, the offensive language. Yeah. So the, the person of color, the person who is disabled, they were being censored to protect them. Everything there, that that's a little ass backwards, right? I mean, yeah. come on. So, so let me get this right. So, so if I put up a post, uh, I may put up something about the sixteen nineteen project, or I might put up something about, uh, you know, clothing for uh, people with disabilities. I, I forget the name of that type of clothing, but I may do something positive and in good spirit, great intention. And what you're saying to me is if an idiot comes through and comments on that post, that TikTok is taking down my post and not taking down their comment. Correct. Keep going. So then it gets a little bit worse if they can do that because they're they're really good at that. Um, Then if someone had a facial deformity, had, um, you know, was a person with autism, had Down syndrome, had a rainbow flag in their profile pic, they can be tagged as what they call auto R, which means auto restricted. And what's going to happen when your account is restricted either automatically or through their, um, their censorship, their censorship or their content checkers, let's say it that way, is that your reach is going to be artificially limited to your country, to your native country, 
and you will be auto excluded from their algorithm that helps push content of interest to other TikTok users. And so they said that they did this as a hard line to preemptively protect those users that might be bullied. Again, I just call bullshit on them because they love, love to, um, that's, I'll say it a different way. They have been shown to really come down, especially on LGBTQ accounts. And now we're finding that that has been extended to people that they may also think are um, undesirable. Yeah. Or um, different or, you know, not a part of, of the look that or the brand that they want to promote of, of human. And so what happened last week, which is is interesting and I think an interesting conversation is that a, a lot of black creators on TikTok got together and they said, first of all, we need to be following each other. So are we proactively um, supporting black creators on TikTok? Mm. And then how do we start to raise our voice in protest using the social media with different hashtags, black creator, um, I'm black, black voices heard, and ask other individuals on TikTok, other users to also follow those accounts with those hashtags so that they could flood the, the algorithm that shows us that new and interesting content with black creators. And it was, it was really cool. I'm always interested in how we use social media as a protest vehicle and, and to raise voices. And CNN did an article then just in the last few days about how the hashtag black creators had more than 6 million views. It was trending on, on hash or on TikTok, And we were also seeing black creators feeling very invigorated, very heard, very excited because they were growing their platform and their use of TikTok. And, and it reminded a little bit of, to the shout out that you gave last week about following the hijabi women. And I think it's important. I think it becomes relatively easy for us. Um, I'm, just, I'm talking as a white person. Um, relatively easy for us to sort of not recognize that we're in our bubble and we're not following Black voices, we're not following Muslim voices, we're not following LGBTQ voices, we're not following disabled voices. And this is a demonstration that those social media platforms and how we utilize them do have an impact on people and, and they do change the way that we engage each other, sometimes very negatively, but in cases like this, to the positive. Yeah, let me tell you, I, uh, I often go through and do a bit of a purge inside of my Twitter. I don't use TikTok, uh, but I'm I'm assuming that it works in some of the the, the, the similar ways of other yeah. social media uh, platforms, and so I I regularly go through and purge um, the, the the people that I'm following. Um, I, I kind of use this number of 200 or somewhere between two and 300, and you know I'll take some folks out and swap some folks in, and like you mentioned, you know I put the hijabi women in uh, last week. I also went out. And signed up for a few uh, Muslim-related newsletters, uh, and so I'm getting their newsletters now uh, and beginning to read that information. You know, I, I just think that it's extremely important, especially when you consider that on a lot of these social media platforms, uh, blacks absolutely over-index in terms of usage. Uh, and so, when you mention using it as a protest vehicle, using it as a 
a mechanism for disseminating information, actionable information, insight, resource, uh, a positive way. You know, certainly we have enough trash and, uh, you know, entertainment and foolishness, fool, tomfoolery, as they say. You know, every once in a while I smile and laugh at some of the stuff that's there. But, you know, primarily I use it. I'm kind of boring, but primarily I use it to to really push the narrative around, you know, DNI and, and what is it that we are considering. So I am happy that these individuals were able to coalesce and come uh, come up or come away with uh, hashtags that are going to bring uh, awareness to this issue. I, I, my hope is that, you know, somebody in that foray, you know, somebody using that um, I'm black hashtag black voices heard hashtag black creators Hashtag, I'm hopeful that somebody there says to themselves, I'm willing to take the plunge. Uh, I have the insight. I have the connection. Uh, I think I can muster up the funding. Uh, But let's create a platform that rivals a TikTok. Let's create a platform that rivals a Facebook, an Instagram. Let's create a platform that uh, complements, rivals a LinkedIn. It doesn't matter to me what it is. What I... What I I find frustrating, Julie, is we have all of these stories on uh, these social media platforms. Black and brown people are over indexing, using them, using them, using them, using them, using them ad nauseum. uh, And yet we don't really benefit from it. Uh, And so that's, you know, that's a piece that's frustrating for me. And so now here we are finding ourselves being censored, you know, in the last uh, go round, you know, a couple of years ago, we were taken advantage of. You had individuals creating fake Black Lives Matter accounts, you know, grabbing, you know, the attention of black and brown people and they were fake accounts. So I just don't want to see us continue to be taken advantage of. And certainly not because the organization says that they consider themselves, quote, protecting me. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, and it's another great way for white people to learn about Black culture, Black struggles, Black, you know, interactions where they wouldn't maybe necessarily have them in their day-to-day lives. But if you can follow hashtag Black Twitter, um, you know, uh, disabled Twitter, crypto vote, all those kind of things are light. Do such at your own risk. Because let me tell you, Julie. You're going to find some stuff. That's true. Yes, 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 yes. Now, you you follow Black Twitter. Uh, and I followed it. And and let me tell you, every once in a while, I probably haven't done it in like six months, 12, eight months, put in the hashtag. But let me tell you, man, every once in a while, you'll find yourself like, oh, boy, what, <laughs> what am I looking at? <laughs> what am I looking at? You know? Yes, yes, that's fair. It's the same on, on disabled Twitter. Like, sometimes I'm like, whoa, what, what are we talking about here? And then yeah, I, I scroll yeah. by. But that yeah. should, but it shows you the, like, that we who are not in a community kind of think so blanketly about the entirety of the community. And then you start to see all of these different, sometimes like, whoa, voices, but they're part of the community. And, and that opens, I feel like it makes people more human, um, even when we're not sitting next to each other. So at your own risk. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we put a, we put a parental warning on it. We don't want you to come back and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, invite Julie and I, because we, we put you in a place where you were, you know, it, it can be a bit of a, it can be an eye opener. Let's just say that. <laughs> it can be an eye opener. Yes. There you go. Okay. Indeed. 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 Hey, look, speaking of eye openers, 
uh, I wanted to give a shout out to all of those individuals that are trying to help the formerly incarcerated. Uh, found a story over on Ad Industry. Uh, I'm, I, I think it's Ad Week, actually. I found a story over on Ad Week. Uh, and there's a ad industry couple that raised over $20,000 to help formerly incarcerated New Yorkers. Uh, and basically what they said, Julie, is that the pandemic has made the transition back to normalcy a bit of a challenge for them. It's been difficult helping them identify and locate jobs, employment, clothing, hygiene products, you know, whole nine. It's just really made it a bit of a challenge and uh, the, the couple is Ashish Prashar of Publicist Sapient uh, and a freelance strategist by the name of Mary Rinaldi. Uh, they've been reaching out to others in the ad space, the marketing space. Uh, their campaign is called Be a Good Neighbor. Uh, and that campaign has raised more than $20,000. And so uh, shout out to them. Uh, and just another reminder to all of us, you know, get in where you fit in. Uh, if there's something that you can do, if you are in a position to do something, again, we're not being critical. We're not, you know, uh, uh, you know, making it mandatory, but just simply saying, if you have the resources and you can, you know, spare a dollar or two here, three or four dollars there, uh, find different causes that help different people because folks are hurting and we want to see if we can make this thing and get through it together. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess my throat is a little dry because I I find another story, um, you know, that talks about black communities. Uh, and in this particular instance, the title is black communities have been hit hard by the coronavirus. Some think black Americans are to blame. The story is actually in the Washington Post. Uh, it's dated. Uh, let me see what's the date on this. If it has it, May fifteenth, twenty twenty, by Lauren Goldstein. Um, it's really about where do we lay the blame? Um, and and I got to tell you, man, when I read the story, Julie, I was. I don't want to say that I was disappointed. I certainly wasn't surprised, but I was perplexed yet again because I, I often ask myself, you know. Um, let, let, let me hit it from a different angle. One plus one is going to always be two. No matter what we do, for the most part, you cannot refute math and science. Like those two things, there really is no argument around them. I've got some people to introduce you to, but but okay, let's let's go with that metaphor. Okay, all right. <laughs> one plus one is going to equal two, uh, and and so I just I'm always perplexed by people that that can see scenarios and not and are not willing to see the totality of the scenario. So you've heard me say that life requires personal responsibility as well as public policy. I've said that often. Uh, and, and it's not an original statement by me, but true, just the same. And so actually, when we think back to April 10th, I know it seems like a long time ago, but Jerome Powell, the U.S. Surgeon, I'm sorry, Jerome Adams, the U.S. Surgeon General, stood up at a podium. And as a black man, he said, 
that black communities, quote, are not helpless and ought to avoid alcohol, tobacco and drugs. Now, listen, this was in reference to the virus spreading and, you know, some other stuff. So let's let's stop right there. Do, do you know who Jerome Adams is other than being the current Surgeon General? Not at all. So Jerome Adams was the Surgeon General or the I'm sorry, not the Surgeon General, but the um, the the top health um, advocate. Not or he he was the number one health person in the state of Indiana while Mike Pence was governor. And if you don't know the story of Indiana's AIDS, HIV emergency in southern Indiana during the Pence administration, Jerome Adams oversaw that emergency and refused, along with the vice president now, then governor, to take proactive measures to stop the spread of HIV in southern Indiana. And it's been profiled in the New York Times in all over the country. And so he has, let's just start with a bias towards people who have addiction, people who um, apparently are LGBTQ, and they took no action. So when he heard this, because I did say it, or I did see it, it, it just immediately set me off to those people are not taking responsibility for themselves, so to be damned. And that's how he treated those Americans in Indiana. And now not the same to talk about black people in, as, in the same way as, as people who have addictions, but he has that very like meritocracy, pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of bullshit um, in his candor that's always going to be there. And so, yeah, he, he doesn't have a lot of room to talk about being a great public or health, public health policy uh, leader for anyone. Well, you know, I absolutely appreciate that back, uh, background because I had no idea, had never done any research on him. I just know that the first time I heard him, you know, when he said that the president was in better health than he was, and I'm looking at this cat and I'm like, uh, okay, all right, that's possible, but doubtful. But 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 his comments were biased. They were inflammatory. They were one-sided when he said that on April 10th. Uh, and you know, bottom line is a lot of individuals were frustrated. And so in this particular article uh, in the Washington Post around black communities uh, being hit hard by the virus, uh, they actually made reference to a 1996 book, which I'm going to actually see if I can find on Amazon, a book titled Divided by Color, Racial, Politics and Democratic Ideals. Um, it, it seems like it's an interesting read. I'm going to grab the book. But basically, What the article mentions is that people who are in high racial resentment do not attribute inequality to accumulated disadvantages from decades of discrimination, but rather to individuals' failures to embrace and act on American ideals of hard work, self-reliance, and individualism. Exactly what you were saying about Jerome and the pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. So let me break that down in a way that's understandable. Racist white folks feel like it is, or I'm sorry, if you have a tendency to lean towards being a racist individual, (laughs) then you will, you will, you will lean more towards, uh, these folks are narrative that they're, they're they're not working hard. Um, the, the virus is hitting their community because they have poor health conditions, uh, excluding the fact of 
uh, systemic bias and prejudice and institutionalized racism in healthcare and, you know, the challenges of uh, gaining opportunity in terms of employment and, and the list can go on. And so it's really a false narrative. And it was perplexing to me, you know, how individuals can see just that tiny slither of a situation and not be willing to look at all of the data that goes into it, not be willing to consider all of the circumstance, all of the scenario, not be willing to look at any of that other contributing factor and just simply say, these are lazy folks. And so my question to you, Julie, is as a white woman, have you ever heard anyone say that white people are lazy? Now, I didn't say white poor people. I said white people. Have you ever heard anyone say that white people are lazy? No. As a general statement, no. I have never heard that blanket statement. Sure. Poor white people, absolutely. I've, I've heard that plenty of times, but never just blanketly white people. And I, I want to I push back on your last comment just a little bit, Torn, and that I think people who are overtly racist and who are leaning racist, if we can use that term, definitely buy into the the blame game very quickly and they use that to to further their narrative. Mm-hmm. But I also think, again, growing up as a white person in a, a racially diverse city, I think that it's more widespread than that. And I'm trying to I'm trying to be cautious in the words that I use. But we're always looking to tell ourselves why something like something bad won't happen to us or why something, um, you know, we don't have to worry about our kids being murdered. We don't have to worry about our husbands not coming home. And I think that it's almost ingrained in, in almost every white brain that it triggers that, oh, well, black people need to eat better. They need to stop smoking. They need to stop going to jail. I mean, for God's sakes, like, there's absolutely personal responsibility in every part of this question. And I think that you're smart to point that out because you you take away some of the argument. But I, I think that the bias is much wider spread than those that are overtly and leaning racist. I think that it's something that most white people cannot grapple with. And when they start to, they they feel yucky inside. And, and then they stop having that conversation and they go back to unconsciously having that bias in their brain, which is stopping them from taking action, right? From helping formerly incarcerated people, like you mentioned with the Prashars, right? They, they give themselves that blanket out. So I think it's, it's bigger than that. Do you know what I mean? I 1000% agree with you. And so no pushback uh, from me. I agree with you 100%. And that's why I often use the uh, phrase bacon apple pies. You know, uh, either you're a racist and you're one of the guys who was in uh, the streets in Charlottesville or one of the people in the streets in Charlottesville, or you were the person at home waiting for them to return home and you baked them an apple pie. You tucked them in and put their Scooby-Doo slippers on uh, at the end of the evening. So bottom line to me is whether you can see yourself racist or you're the one baking them the apple pie, you're still guilty. And so you're absolutely right. And so the perplexing part for me and the challenge for our listener is how do we how do we turn the table on the ending to that 
article in the ending says that raises the questions about whether racially resentful whites will be willing to make sacrifices to slow the spread of a pandemic that is disproportionately hurting African-Americans. And so when you see these individuals standing up in Congress, uh, halls of Congress and other state buildings and marching in the streets and challenging uh, hospital and healthcare workers and spitting on people at restaurants because they can't get in and get their food and not wanting the social distance when it comes to going into the bank. And when you see all of these individuals, uh, and, and, and mind you, it's, it's not only white people that are doing this, but but in this instance, in this case, when you see them doing this, you got to ask yourself, are these individuals that absolutely do not understand, do not acknowledge, do not, uh, uh, you know, address the uncomfortable reality that that privilege of theirs uh, is, is a reality, you know, and, 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 and this is the only way that we are going to change the narrative around DNI equity and belonging is that we must all be able to find some frequency of similarity. I don't care if it's in the soprano octave. I don't care if it's in the alto octave. I don't care if it's in the bass or the uh, tenor octave. We got to find some, uh, note of similarity. We got to get on the same page in the hymn book. We got to get on the same chorus. What do you call it? The, the, the refrain or whatever. I don't know what it is. We got to get, we got to find a way to get on the same frequency, uh, and be able to at least sing the same song. Um, if we're going to change this, you know, I say it often, continue to say it and I'll close with this. You can find the article on, the Washington Post uh, will make sure that the link is in the show notes, but the ROI of DNI is greater humanity. And that is all I care about. I simply want greater humanity. You might hear me say white people or black people or Muslim people or veterans or people with disabilities or people from the gay or lesbian community or the queer community. You might hear me say that You might hear me say from the Indian community or Hispanic community or Afro-Caribbean community, but I love people. I absolutely love people, but I'm not willing to take any of the bullshit. And I'm tired of us not being willing to be honest as it relates to the various issues that play. And in many ways, Julie, are deteriorating from our humanity. Yeah. And when you when you mention science and math and and part of part of what we're seeing too is the power of misinformation and disinformation dividing us if we cannot agree plainly that this is a pandemic if we cannot agree plainly that 90 plus 100,000 plus Americans have died how are we going to get to the place where we can have a conversation that you have to take responsibility for your, your brother, whether that is a black man or a white woman or whoever it is, when we have a swath of the country who won't agree to the basic facts of the matter anymore and who will wrap themselves nicely in the Confederate flag uh, to protest their oppression, right? I mean, it, it. we're fighting this battle on so many fronts right now that I think we also have to look at the totality 
of what is changing the narrative and what is making us more divided and is also empowering those individuals to behave in more overt ways. And I think some of them, not those that are out protesting, but some of them who are baking those apple pies don't understand the impact on the black community, but they choose not to. And they're, they're allowing themselves to be influenced by false narratives that are much, much larger even than the conversation that you and I are having here. They're at the base of our institutions. No, you're absolutely right. And and again, we got to get outside of our bubble. You often talk about that bubble. We have to get outside of that bubble. It is mandatory for, for all of us. I just think it's healthier if we get outside of the bubble and we are not afraid. Speaking of uh, yes. bubble, you know, next month is LGBTQ Pride Month. Uh, nice. And Tubi, which is a streaming service, is offering a range of independent LGBTQ films, um, a number of films that, you know, people may know i've never seen any of them but i am going to see some of them just like i watched crip camp about a month or so ago uh, i'm going to sign up for tubi uh you know if it costs money i'm going to pay for the month and, and at least listen and be supportive then be become more aware if you will it's just another it's another cog in my will of information and learning uh, i always stay in a posture of learning so you can access these titles uh, through the month of June, I, I believe that they have some level of, you know, compliment or discount, but go to 2B, T-U-B-I. Again, go to 2B, T-U-B-I. Jay, who's your name drop? Uh, my name drop is Annie Glenn, a wife of the astronaut John Glenn, uh, who passed away from COVID um, about a week and a half ago. And she was over 100 years old married to John Glenn for 73 years. So that earns a name drop all by itself. But she also was a person with a disability. Uh, She had a lifelong stutter and she knows how that impacted her and the opportunities that she had to overcome that due to her place in in life and um, did a lot of work for our community to raise awareness about communication disorders and other types of disabilities and um, lived a really wonderful and impactful life. So, um, you know, to Annie Glenn. Absolutely. Rest in peace, uh, Annie Glenn. My shout out or my name drop, Dr. Patty Fletcher. She wrote the book uh, Disruptors. Success Strategies for Women Who Break the Mold. Love Dr. Patty Fletcher. You can find her on Twitter at Dr. Patty P-A-T-T-I Fletcher, F-L-E-T-C-H-E-R. Again, at Dr. Patty Fletcher. She is an incredible individual. She and I collaborated on an article for Entrepreneur Magazine uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, a few weeks back, and you can find that. I can't remember the title of such right now, but nonetheless, Dr. Patty Fletcher, you are my name drop for this particular week. Uh, Take us out, Jay. Yeah, so next week, you and I are going to have some fun at HR Summer School, which doesn't sound fun, but it will be fun. I've seen the lineup. It's uh, two days of of great content, and you and I- No detention, good content. Oh, we're out, not, yes. No detention, great content. You can drink gin while you're uh, watching. And on June 2nd, which is the second day of HR Summer School, uh, Torin and I will be wrapping up the event with a live conversation with Ben Eubanks. And on June 3rd, I'll be rocking the keynote, the morning keynote at Transform HR. 
You can use the hashtag TransformHR if you haven't signed up and gotten the ticket. If you tweet me, I'll get you a code so you can get a discount. And if you show me real love, I'll get you a complimentary pass. Check that out. I'm just saying TransformHR is the hashtag. If you tweet me, I'll get you a discount. If you show the kid real love, I'll get you a complimentary pass. We close encouraging each and every one of you to be a better human. We want you to have an awesome rest of the week. Catch me on Sirius XM channel 126 Sunday, 1 p.m. Eastern. Sirius XM 126, 1 p.m. Eastern on Sunday. For now, Jay and I are ghost. See ya. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.